0: Welcome into Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pal Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Happy New Year!
1: Happy New Year to you, Kevin. I celebrated New Year in the best possible way um, by going to Italy, drinking wine at five o'clock, which was midnight New year, Italian time. Was back home at seven to watch the Georgia game, and then got new life at midnight on the east coast time so it was it was two great new year celebrations
0: well there you go it doesn't get any better than that
1: does it what did you do kevin well
0: we just hung out here we had our little granddaughter with us and that was all fun and uh so we uh, we had a good time you know uh I, i'm not sure at what age you decide that you don't need to go out for new year's anymore um uh, uh, one of my daughters was in town and She went out, and they spent the night at somebody's house, uh, wherever they had a a party, and uh, so, which was good. You don't need to be out after that. Um, But I, I got to tell you, I was, uh, I was never, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly the the uh, party type anyway, and never was. Uh, But uh, I I like being in. As as someone once said, you don't want to be out there with all those amateurs uh, on uh, on such an evening of uh, of revelry you know, we might say.
1: This is correct. I, um, new year's Eve is not my favorite holiday. I, I, I think it is one of these, um, it's a, it's, it's a zero sum game for, for most people either. Like you, you have to have this, like, well, everything now is measured in how Instagrammable the moment is. You have to have this like Instagrammable night full of, women in sparkly dresses and men dressed up and lots of revelry uh, and screaming or else you failed at New Year's. That that, that seems to be the only two options. And at some point in life, you figure out that there is a third and it's just like, it's another night. Uh, It's a good time to reset in a lot of ways and start to look forward to what you can do in the next year. And if you're around if you're, if you're, if you are so predisposed to be around some friends and some family, um, then that's, that's great. Uh, but I, the whole idea of like having a big new year's is, uh, completely, completely lost on me.
0: Besides you had yelling there at your house anyway, right? Wasn't Gina probably screaming at you a lot.
1: Um, well, I I screamed at 11 o'clock very loudly and ran around the house and, (laughs) Kept saying to Gina over and over again, Gina, they were down by 14 on two different occasions. And that it didn't really seem to register with her.
0: Well, we're talking about the Georgia Bulldogs, of course. And we're going to talk about that later in our podcast, as a matter of fact, about the uh, terrific semifinal games in the college football playoff. Uh, Both of them were just uh, hard to believe that you could have two games like that back to back uh, games of that. Magnitude and importance uh, to college football, anyway, uh, and uh, it was very—it was a very entertaining day. I'll say that. I can't remember. uh Well, there, there have been other games that will rival either one of those, but I don't think you could could ever put two back to back like that. So that was
1: that was and a big. And get price. the bonus that both losing teams were from the Big Ten. That's that's also a, a, a real bonus for fans there. Wow!
0: Wow! A Big Ten shot across the bow of the Big Ten. Well, that'll that'll raise that'll raise a few hackles here, but we'll we'll see how that goes. All right. Well, we had a, a development last night in the uh, the football game that was harrowing, horrifying, uh, terrible to watch, and and that of course was Demar Hamlin collapsed on the field, a Buffalo Bills twenty four year old defensive back um, after a tackle. Stood up, uh, collapsed, fell back on his head. I have to tell you, Evan, um, because of the history of, of heart problems in my family, uh, and in particular, my younger brother, who uh, collapsed of uh, sudden cardiac arrest as well um, while out for a run in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, was uh someone saw him fall, uh, they they called the EMTs, they came, they put the paddles on him, they restarted his heart. Uh, he went to the hospital, they put him in a hypothermic coma uh, because they weren't sure how long he'd been out. After four minutes, uh, we you start to have uh, uh, brain damage from the lack of oxygen. Um, and they brought him out 48 hours later, and he was just fine. Uh, when the, the fire chief, after I went to Bartlesville and and talked to as many people as I could in the 48 hours that my brother was in a coma. Um, After the fire chief called me uh, two days later, uh, just to ask me how my brother was doing. I said, well, he's doing just fine. You guys saved his life. And he said, well, that's such a good thing to hear. He said, I've had 150 of these cases over the years. He was an older gentleman. he said, I've had four success stories. Um, so it was quite a miracle in, in our family to see that happen. But I had to. But I, all I could think of when I saw uh, Hamlin collapse and fall backward on his head that was exactly what happened to my brother. Uh, I found the blood spot on the sidewalk where he had collapsed and hit it the back of his head. Um, so. Uh, I, 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 thought that's probably what had happened to him and I didn't know what had caused it. Of course, there's only one other time in NFL history that that sort of thing has happened. And that was Chuck Hughes, a 28 year old wide receiver for the Detroit lions in 1971. Chuck was born in Philadelphia, but he grew up in Abilene where he played football. He also played at what was then Texas Western. Now UTEP. Uh, was drafted by the Eagles, traded to the Lions, had come into the game, uh, made, a, I believe, a 32-yard catch uh, to preserve uh, a drive for the Lions, and then had simply run a pattern uh, and was returning to the huddle when he collapsed and fell face down on the field. Um, at that point um, in, the, in the Lions' huddle, they noticed that someone was missing, and they looked down the field and saw him. And Dick Buckus was standing over him, and uh, the great um, Bears linebacker, and was signaling wildly for someone to come and help. Uh, they finally came to the field. They resuscitated him. They they got him to breathe again, and then his heart stopped once again. They got him to the hospital. Uh, his heart stopped, started briefly, and then stopped again, and he was dead uh, at twenty eight. They found later that he had arteriosclerosis, uh, had uh, probably a uh, which was unusual for obviously for someone of that age of 28. But there was a history of heart problems in the family um, and he, they felt like a a blood clot had dislodged and traveled to his heart and caused it to stop. Uh, so that was a, obviously a terrible story. I remember that of course I was 15 years old when that happened. Uh, that was, uh, obviously always, uh, something hanging over the league at the time in 1971. And of course for years and years after that, um, someone asked me on an uh, email this morning, "Did did ESPN not remember that that had happened because they didn't bring it up. And I told that person, I'm sure they felt like they didn't want to link to that. Uh, so soon before we knew what had happened to Hamlin and whether he was going to make it or not. Um, but, of course, that is quite a story now, and there's lots of things circulating about that. So, Evan, I'm wondering what you were thinking when you saw him collapse, DeMar Hamlin, in the game last night. Well,
1: I had, um, I had actually decided I wasn't going to watch the game last night. I had footballed out for, for several days, and um, I just happened to – stroll through Twitter about two or three minutes later and heard that he had collapsed and that they were attending to him on the field. And, uh, when I, when I switched over, obviously ABC or ESPN were, was, was simply into the coverage and I followed it both on TV and on Twitter. And, you know, all I could think about was, hopefully he'd be okay. You he, run through all the things in your head. Like as a person, you, you wonder like what caused it? You see the play. You, you wonder if there was some kind of trauma to the chest, uh, that caused some kind of coronary event. Um, but I, I also, and, and I'm sitting here saying this now after the fact, you know, I, I was afraid to even speak it because i am I'm, I'm not qualified to, to diagnose anything like that and, and I'm watching on TV uh, as I flipped over to CNN and to watch some of their coverage and and was watching their people talk about potential causes for the for the collapse. Um, I saw a lot of people uh, worrying about why the NFL took so long. Uh, to can't to to postpone the game. You know, there were a lot of for me what were tangential issues at that point in time because the only thing that that mattered was uh, a man had collapsed in front of however many thousands of people. Uh, his mother saw him collapse. His family members saw him collapse, and and so all I could think of was the only thing that mattered was hopefully this this person. I'm not even going to call. Hamlin a a player right now he just this person would survive and 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 would be okay and 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 that's all that was on my mind at that point in time
0: yeah it was a it was a terrible thing to watch you know I I, you you did feel like well what was what was the NFL going to do I I think in that point you know uh, and and you hate to say this but it's just all a matter of making sure all all the all the all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. Was everybody contacted? Was the union contacted? Was the commissioner contacted? You know, I I think if you read uh, the reactions today, what you find on on Tuesday as we're taping this was that uh, no one was thinking the game would go on. Uh, Everyone was just making sure that everybody was on the same page here and that uh, um, that we will, you know, whether they reschedule it or whatever they do, I don't. See, any way possible they can reschedule this game, it seems like they'll just have to declare it a tie and determine uh, some other way to uh, figure out how this is going to affect the standings. Um, but there's just, you know, there, there's no way to do that. And I, I feel bad for the Buffalo Bills that they have to go forward as it is and play with, with this and not know. What the the effects are on Demar Hamlin, who is in critical condition as we are taping this, uh, I, I am a, you know ecstatic to learn that his heart was restarted and they were able to uh, keep him uh, alive. He's apparently on a on a breathing apparatus, um, and uh, so that's great to know that as as though as I noted in the case of my brother, though there are. Um, questions about, you know, uh, how long he was out and how that will affect him. It doesn't affect everybody the same way. Uh, but, uh, it is a, a definite concern, uh, going forward. So there is a lot, uh, to, to still be, uh, determined here in this case. And, 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 uh, God love that family and the, and the Buffalo Bills and what they go through now. And, and certainly our prayers go out to them, uh, in such a such a terrible thing to witness. Uh, you know, we we see death and and uh, and terrible things happen to people all the time, and you become a little inured to it. Uh, you you read about it every day, but when you watch it happen before your very eyes, it, it makes uh, quite a difference. And uh, I know that uh, that it did certainly. For me, and for other people who are watching, and certainly the people and his teammates, and the, even even the people he was playing against, uh, impacted the same way. So, yeah,
1: and I, I mean that's the thing, Kevin, is that, um, and, and I, I, again, like I certainly wouldn't my place to weigh in on social media or anything, but I I was a little bit disappointed last night that this um this narrative kept getting stoked about what is the league doing? What is the league doing? I'm not. I'm in no way uh, an advocate of the NFL, but the bottom line is these leagues are um, they're multi-billion dollar businesses and they are giant monoliths and nothing just gets done at the snap of a finger. Um, as you said, the union had to be involved. The commissioner had to be it still had to be briefed, even, even though all you need to tell the commissioner is a player collapsed on the field. Everything, everything else gets impacted and you have to just work through some of the logistics. And if people watching on TV or in the stadium have to stay there for 20 minutes without an actual verdict on the game, I think that's the least of anybody's concerns. I, I, you know, when I went to bed last night, they, they were still talking about the, the, the coaches being given five minutes for the players to get ready. I don't know if you, you seem to be indicating, I have not read this morning. So you seem to be indicating that, uh, that maybe that wasn't quite the, the, the situation. I, no,
0: just, and I think that's where a lot of this comes from is that, Oh, how could they consider playing Because they rounded the players up on the sideline and you, and you saw Stefan Diggs, you know, giving a pep talk or what looked like a pep talk to the other players. Maybe he wasn't doing that at all. Maybe he was just telling them to rally up here and, you know, but it certainly looked like, uh, they maybe were, he was just
1: speaking to his players, um, with passion and emotion about, Having watched their teammate suffer a critical moment, you know, I mean, it, uh, well, there's, I yeah, know, there's no way you know,
0: to know exactly. There's no right. way to know exactly what was what happened at that point, but I think, as as from what I can tell now, is that no, they were never really truly considering that. I think they were just waiting to get word uh, from people about what was going to happen because that's that's not a question of what was happening on the field. that was not a that was not a question for the f- game officials. Uh, no one's making that decision whether the game goes on or not. Uh, I was certainly thinking that when Zach Taylor came across the field uh, to talk to the Bill's head coach, I just thought at that point, he looked like to me he was saying whatever you guys want to do or whatever's going to happen, this we're good with that, and I
1: and I'm but sure that probably- quite frankly, it's neither of their places at that point in time because it just goes beyond all them. And so I thought that any narrative that the two coaches were somehow um, talking about things was perhaps a little bit misguided because it's out of their hands. I mean, it, it yeah. just is.
0: Well, um, the, the one thing you could do is you could pull your players off the field and say, I'm not I'm not bringing my players back and certainly that was I think something that that might have been discussed or, or at least thought about you know I think you know the fact that he did wave his players off the field and go to the locker room at that point I think that was the right thing to do and not not to leave them out there on the sidelines take them somewhere where they could all be together and out of range of the cameras and, and of the public and all of that that was the right thing to do uh, so I think everybody
1: I everybody think it handled bird- it all
0: well. I thought, uh, from all, all things considered, from what happened, that was about as well as you could expect anyone to respond. Once the
1: gravity of the moment hit, that obviously you know what they had all just witnessed, and the ambulance on the field, and the ambulance leaving, and and, and at that point in time, I think everybody kind of had to just take their take a breath, and and then the right thing to do was send the players to the locker room and get them off the field. But the first the first order of business was getting Hamlin situated and all of that. And once that took place, there was gonna be some what's the right word? Residual shock before everything else kind of went in the right direction. And let's just look back. I mean, you talked about <clears throat> you talked about the Hughes case, right? That game was played to its completion in front of a crowd that obviously had just witnessed somebody dying on the field. And so I'd like to think that 50 years later, um, we have, I don't want to say learn, but we have evolved a little bit to know that there are things that are bigger than finishing the football game.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right, uh, and it was a valuable lesson learned from that, no question. Well, all right, uh, now we're going to move on to things far less important uh, than in life and death, and that was uh, or that is the Dallas Cowboys and their uh, playoff prospects. Now they have clinched a playoff spot, as of course that they they are still in the running for uh, winning the division and and therefore hosting at least the first game uh, in the playoffs, which would really be good for this team, I think, although it didn't do them any good last year against San Francisco. They hosted that one, and that didn't go so well. Uh, But uh, the fact that the Eagles lost to the Saints, I watched that game, um, really just – really kind of twist the knife a little bit in the Cowboys for that loss to Jacksonville and not protecting that lead, uh, when they had the opportunity, because then if they were to win this final game, uh, and if it wouldn't matter what the, the Eagles did in their last game against the Giants, uh, with the Cowboys against uh, Washington, uh, the Cowboys would win the division on the basis of their, they had the one on the tiebreaker with the Eagles. Uh, so, uh, that is a little bit frustrating, I would think, for most Cowboys fans And knowing that. I think the thing we, we learned watching that game uh, w- uh, when the Eagles lost to the Saints and to uh, uh, Andy Dalton as the starting quarterback, and uh, that to think that they could lose to that team without Jalen Hurts really does make a pretty good case for Hurts as the MVP, doesn't it?
1: Well, uh, certainly – you watched what took place between Minnesota and Green Bay the other day, and Justin Jefferson, who would be another really, really strong candidate, was completely shut down and Minnesota suffered its second thirty point loss of the season. Teams yeah. lost the, the the Vikings are twelve and four and two of their losses are by thirty plus points. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's just uh, the craziest thing this, this year in the NFL. I don't – you know, it's, it's funny when – we, They we, have the
1: worst point differential of any 12 and 14 in NFL history. They are n- minus 19. It's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, I just this year the I, I just don't remember
0: a, a season like this in the NFL and then and this is always what's funny to me when I, I hear from uh readers and uh and they complain about the Cowboys and of course we've all complained about the Cowboys and we point out that their deficiencies and the fact that, that Dak Prescott's throwing too many interceptions and they why can't they put it all together and one week the defense plays well and next week the offense plays well and they can't ever you know, the, the game against the Vikings was, was the one time this year where they put everything together. And, of course, they just dominated Minnesota there in Minneapolis and showed what kind of team they can really be. And so that's frustrating for fans to see that. But when you look around the rest of the league, it's like, and I tell fans this all the time, even with Dak not playing well, he's still probably a top 10 quarterback in this league. There just hasn't been – there aren't – there's a handful of quarterbacks playing really well. Uh, the, I, I was certainly wouldn't. You know, there's Patrick Mahomes, there's Joe Burrow, uh, Justin Herbert, uh, Josh Allen, Allen. You know, and that's and really that's about it. Once you get past that group, then it's kind of a free for all at that point. Uh, my point being that Dak Prescott's plenty good enough to get this team to uh, a Super Bowl if the Cowboys play well. Otherwise, uh, and they certainly have the capability of doing that. What we saw from the Eagles against the Saints was that Jalen Hurts was out. And uh, Gardner Minshew wasn't nearly good enough, but neither was the rest of the Eagles. They couldn't even line up and get a playoff. They had about I don't know five uh, you know motion penalties, but uh, you know during the game. Just and the question. Is, the line. question
1: that comes to my mind immediately in the in the wake of that is. How the heck did Gardner Minshew have the game that he had against the Cowboys and then play the the the, the game the next week against the Saints? It just it just kind of blows my mind. I, I do want to go back to Jacksonville for one minute because at the end of that game, I, I, I tweeted that look this this loss, the devastation of this loss can't be overstated. And what I got back on social media from the jaded Cowboy fans was. Why? What, 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 what's so bad about this loss? This team was going to be locked into the fifth spot anyway. Uh, let Just get healthy and blah, 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 blah. Well, I, I think we're now seeing that, right? I mean, when you have a chance to win the division and a chance to, to finish with the number one seed overall, that's all that matters at that point in time. And uh, if the Cowboys don't finish with the number one seed now, well, I, I, I guess there's there's some scenario where they could win uh, next week and, and still finish finish with the division championship, but not uh, not number one overall, correct? Well, they're got
0: they they're well right now they the worst they could be is the fifth seed. Uh, well, well, we'll they, if wait, they don't win know, the division,
1: but they, they can finish, the they could finish. I, I thought either second or third behind San Francisco or Minnesota.
0: I believe that's correct. Uh, so, yeah, the, it, it's still it's still fairly wide open. Uh, and as I as I pointed out, obviously, that's what you would prefer is uh, because the cowboy everybody's better at home than they are on the road. Uh, although last year, the Cowboys had, uh, you know, open at home against the 49ers. And what happened there? Uh, right. They played poorly and lost. <laughs> So uh, you know maybe this team needs to be uh, pushed with its back against the wall and uh, and put it in a position where it, it you know there is it's not a favorite although I I would imagine the Cowboys you know obviously if they open on the road to get in Tampa Bay the, you know that at one time would have seemed like at one point this season I don't know the first first game of the season they play the Bucks and they get blown out and they and the Bucks look great and the Cowboys look awful. And it looked like, a and Dak got hurt, and it looked like, oh my gosh, what a what a terrible season this is going to be. Yep. Uh, and some of us were revising our Cowboys picks from uh, eleven wins to six wins, and it was it was disaster. And right. then, as the season goes along, the Cowboys keep winning. Uh, certainly, it was uh, helped by the fact that uh, you know the uh, Cooper Rush came in and. And did a phenomenal job as the backup in four games uh, and, and, and went 3-1 and one over that stretch. And then the Cowboys picked it up from there. And they have kind of had their ups and downs, of course. But they still have, uh, have won 12 games. This has been a phenomenal season in a lot of ways for the Cowboys. And yet we get back to the end of it here. And and just in time for the playoffs, Tom Brady becomes Tom Brady again, uh, which just seems unbelievable that he could play the game that he did the other day and put themselves in this position. And as I heard some analysts say at one point during the season, nobody wants to play Tom Brady in the playoffs. We don't care what shape the Bucks may be in and what's, what it's been looking like. Nobody wants to play Tom Brady in the
1: playoffs. And I'd, I'd expand that a little bit to the fact that Up in Green Bay, Aaron Rodgers has now won five straight, and they're on the verge of the playoffs as well. And who wants to play Aaron Rodgers in the playoffs? And given Aaron Rodgers' history with the Cowboys, you'd hate to – you know, you don't – a bracket that includes San Francisco, Tom Brady, and uh, um, and Aaron Rodgers for the Cowboys to advance to the Super Bowl – is is quite the gauntlet for this team in any way shape or form. Any, any combination of that is going to be is going to is, is going to face down a whole lot of demons for this team.
0: Well, I guess brings you back it's except for the 49ers it's all quarterbacks, right? If you yep. you're looking at you're looking at guys because uh, of what the job that Jalen Hurts has done for the Eagles this year, I'm assuming he'll be healthy by that time. There's I would assume he'll probably play this week against the Giants. Um, you know, it, it was an injury to his throwing shoulder. We'll see how well he throws. The thing about Jalen Hurts, of course, that makes him so good this year is he, he has thrown it very well and uh, done a great job of protecting it, but he's also, also runs very well. And that's, that's an element that the Eagles did not have with Gardner Minshew. He was, he wasn't going anywhere. Uh, and it just makes such a difference when your quarterback uh, can do the things uh, uh, when everything breaks down, well, he'll just take off. Uh, so, uh, but So you have that, which is, to me, the that's what uh, the position is going to be in the future, at least in the near future. In the next five to ten years, uh, you're going to just have quarterbacks in the NFL like that. But we still, in these playoffs, may end up with quarterbacks from the former era, uh, talking about Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, guys who were among the best to ever play the position. Uh, and so – the, the Cowboys lost last year to a team led by Jimmy Garoppolo uh, in the playoffs. This year, um, we'll see what they do. Uh, I, I I don't feel good about anything that's happening on defense at the moment. Uh, the pass rush has evaporated. Uh, that was the one thing you could really count on. Their, their run defense really hasn't gotten any better. Um, they, they still struggle with that. Uh, Micah Parsons is playing with a club on his left hand, you know, whether that is going to, uh, it didn't seem to affect him very much in that game last week. Uh, but I will say this, he has not been the, the, uh, Micah Parsons that the Cowboys apparently need him to be, you know, he, if he's not getting one or two sacks, uh, and, and four or five, uh, quarterback hits, the defense just doesn't seem to play very well. I mean, I, I think that for that reason, you know, we we keep talking about Micah Parsons as the, uh, you know, is he in the running for Defensive Player of the Year? Well, if he hadn't had this little swoon here at the end of the season, I think he'd make a run for MVP. I mean, w- when he's playing well, the Cowboys look really good. When yeah, he's not I mean, playing well, if he's not dominating the game, they don't they don't look so good.
1: Well, you could you could make the you could have made the case that listen, the, at least. <laughs> at least on the NFC side, right, that there were three players who most impacted their team were Jalen Hurts, Justin Jefferson, and, and Micah Parsons. And I, I think that Parsons has, has dropped off a little bit in the last couple of weeks. And the fact that I don't feel quite as good about the Cowboys, the, I, 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 my question would be going into the playoffs, what concerns me most? The fact that Dak has has had some ball, what's the right word, um, security, ball security and and awareness issues over the last couple of weeks, or the defensive um, uh, slide, which is the bigger concern for me going into the playoffs, I might say I, I might say the defensive side. I, I know that quarterbacks supposedly win you championships, but Man, I, I thought this team's biggest advantage in the first half of the season was that it had the best defense in the NFL, and I and now I don't think they've got the best defense in the NFC.
0: No, I think you're right. Uh, it, that's the one thing that you could always count on in this team in the first half of the season was the defense, right? They were just playing at, they were playing at a level we were calling it perhaps the best defense in Cowboys history. You know, putting on a level the Doomsday defenses and the defenses of, of Jimmy Johnson in the early '90s, uh, just playing. Uh, a great level defense. And then all of a sudden, everybody realized, hey, let's just run on these guys. And yeah. that's what they did. And then, you know, they, they, they've they never, they never shut anybody down that, that had a, any kind of running game whatsoever, uh, which has just been frustrating to watch. Uh, and then all of a sudden, as I said, the, the the pass rush has evaporated as well. And, you know, if, if, if you're playing a guy like Aaron Rodgers uh, and you have a, a pass rush that can get to him Without blitzing, uh, well, then you've got something going on. You ha- you have a chance there because he's not going to do a lot outside the pocket. Although he did run for a touchdown the other night, which was interesting to watch. Uh, and the same goes for for Tom Brady. Um, but uh, w- we'll see what they can do. As far as the, the the Dak Prescott thing, I will say this about the turnovers. Obviously, these are not all his fault. Uh, right. You know, you know the the first one, he, he hits you know a shot right in the chest, which is what he's supposed to do, and the guy. Bobbles it. And I got to tell you, Evan, and we had a discussion when my sons and I do all the time about uh, I'm not sure what it is in the NFL these days that uh, that wide receiver coaches talk to wide receivers about, but the positioning of their hands and how they're trying to catch a football just plummoxes me. I, I don't understand why these guys you know, are still allowed to try to catch the balls with their chest. They don't reach out the right way. I, I know, Evan, because you have covered baseball forever, you know that when infielders catch balls, they're supposed to – or a ground ball, they're supposed to do certain things with their feet and the way they position their hands. And these are just – these are fundamental things that you do. You're not just out there, you know, flapping your glove at the ball when it comes at you. And the same thing goes when you're uh, a, a base runner – you have what, what's called a crossover step that you take. That first step, you know, instead of just turning and sticking your right foot out, you cross over with your left foot because they they've shown that this gives you an extra advantage. You you got a couple, probably another foot, you know, gained with that first step that way. And yet in football, all the time, wide receivers put their hands up the wrong way, uh, and 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 many times, not only does this result in drop passes, but in interceptions, balls yeah. bouncing off of yeah. them. Because of what they're doing. So that's happened to the Cowboys a lot this year. Uh it happened to Dak Prescott a lot this year. But the other side of it is that Dak's not the most accurate quarterback in the world. He never has been. Uh, what, what he has been able to do early in his career, and is he's not doing now, because everybody you know who goes off about Dak and the interceptions forgets the fact that really throughout his career, he's been very good about not throwing interceptions. Uh, and that's because... He's always looked for the guy who was wide open. You know, I'm, I'm going to check it down and throw it to this guy. Uh, you know, uh, that that's how Beasley, Cole Beasley became a, a star was because he wasn't anything before Dak became the quarterback. Tony Romo never threw, you know, Cole Beasley, the football. He was throwing it to Des Bryant all the time. Giving Des throwing to Des Bryant, let him take those 50, 50 balls and out fight the defensive back for them. Cole Beasley was running these great patterns and getting open and Tony didn't care. Well, Dak did. And all of a sudden, Dak's throwing the ball left and right to Cole Beasley. And that's that's because he was the guy that was open. And now what we're seeing from Dak is that, no, I'm going to I'm going to take this shot downfield. I'm going to I'm going to force this pass right here because we need to get down the field and I want to make this happen. And this is what has happened in, in my estimation with Dak this year. And he's just not as accurate with that ball as he needs to be all the time. I, you know, I'm watching that game before we saw that devastating injury to, to DeMar Hamlin and, and looking at, uh, uh, Joe Burrow throw that touchdown pass in the end zone. And it's just a dart and it's exactly where the ball has to be. It's just a beautiful throw. And, uh, and Dak just struggles making that kind of throw. He's not that kind of quarterback and for everybody who wants to complain, he's making $40 million and oh my gosh, he's not as good as Joe Burrow and he's not as good as Herbert or Allen. No, he's not, but he was a fourth round draft pick. And this is w- one of the reasons why he was a fourth round draft pick. And because he's not one of the four or five best quarterbacks in the, in the league does not mean he can't be a Super Bowl winning quarterback. He's certainly good enough to be that. And, what they have to do though is that he's got to stop forcing those throws. I know they want him to be aggressive, but he's got to stop forcing throws into that kind of coverage. He, you know, and then and then the flip side of that is these guys gotta start catching the ball with their hands and quit with the ball has quit bouncing off of them. It's just unbelievable some of the bad luck. As as Mike McCarthy said the other day, we're a little bit snake bit on some of this stuff. And I think that was an accurate description. Of, of what's happened at times, but they just have to be more careful because this, this is a very potent offense. What's lost in all this is that they're scoring what 34 points a game since that came back. Uh You know, they're there's, they're one of the most potent offenses in the league, uh, that, but they cannot turn the ball over. Uh, and so, so to your point earlier about which are you more concerned about the turnovers or the defense, I think I'm probably with you on the defense but the flip side of that is, is that you cannot turn the ball over like that in the playoffs uh, against a good team. Uh, the good teams protect the football. That's certainly what the Eagles have done this year, uh, although they have struggled some here in the second half of the season. I thought those statistics were pretty interesting about how good they were the first half of the season in protecting the football. And then in the, in the second half of the season, they, they have not done that at all. It's just, it's just been a complete flip of that. So, uh, you know, Everybody goes through phases here and certainly everybody is this season in the NFL. It's just really hard to make predictions and I think that my my pick 'em line in which, you know, Dana Larson pointed out that she was so glad that I was also on the pick 'em line because it kept her from being last. So at any rate,
1: All right, thank, that's you, going to uh, thank you, everybody, for coming to Kevin's TED talk on pass catching. Um, <laughs> this is good stuff.
0: I go, I am gonna, you know I am gonna go out to the Cowboys. I am gonna ask Jerry if I can come out and just talk to the receivers a little bit about this because apparently the their you know, assistant coaches are not talking to them about it. So, anyway. you know,
1: if you if you went out there and passed yourself off as Fred Belitnikov,
0: I think that I love Fred Belitnikov. I am gonna tell you something. When I was growing up, Fred Bolitnikov was one of my favorite receivers. He'd stick those hands out there. He looked like a first baseman, you know, waiting for a football to come to him. Oh, I love Fred Bolitnikov. Yeah, he well, you could. I, now,
1: I I'm not sure if Fred Bolitnikov is with us any longer, but <laughs> if, if he is, you could pass yourself off as Fred Bolitnikov and give those receivers. Yeah, you know, I could see you. Talking to Michael Gallup. Now, look here, young man. Here's how you catch a pass. I, I think it would, I think it would benefit the Cowboys. I really do. Absolutely. Yeah, they
0: named over an award after Fred Uh So let, just remember that, okay? They
1: named an award after Lou Groza too.
0: <laughs> Lou the Toe Groza. That was his nickname. Did you know that? The toe.
1: Yes, the toe.
0: Wow. They don't give those kind of nicknames anymore. I don't either. really
1: think he kicked with the toe, though. I, I I I think that was kind of a misnomer. But whatever. It
0: is. No, he had this huge toe. His toe was like the size of a canned ham. That's what people didn't realize. The guy had an extra advantage. It was unfair, really. His toe was humongous. Lou <laughs> <right>. the toe <laughs> grows All right, that's, that's gonna top top do top. it for our NFL talk. We're gonna move over now and talk a little about the Rangers. Uh they got themselves like, I don't know, 10 or 12 pitchers they've signed now. Uh they're 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 I think they're going to go with like a nine-man rotation this year, aren't they?
1: Um, look, what they have with signing Nathan Uvalde, they have a pitching pool now. They, they they really have a legitimate pitching pool. They've got six capable big league starters who have real resumes um, in DeGrom, Uvalde, Heaney, Perez, Gray, uh, and... Um, who am Odorizzi. I forgetting? Odorizzi. Uh, and Odorizzi. Uh, they've got they've got a serviceable starter in Dane Dunning, who is coming back from a hip surgery. They've got potentially promising arms in Cole Reagan's and Glenn Otto. Uh, and maybe eventually Cole Win and potentially before the end of this year, Owen White and maybe Zach Kent. So they've got a real pitching pool and you, you know, it's not a five man rotation that will carry you to a division title or, or the postseason. It's how deep your overall pitching is. And this is a big difference for this team. Now I say all this, and there's a number of ways they could potentially move from here. Um, Obviously, signing Uvaldi gives them more depth, and uh, it would potentially bounce Odorizzi into more of a swing man or a long relief role. Uh, or if at some point in time during the season you said, and I don't think this would happen in April because of the number of off days, um, and that I think in April you'd have more guys on on start limits, so having a piggyback guy would be more important. But you could have Odorizzi as either a sixth man eventually uh in a rotation or you could have him as kind of that long man spot starter in a bullpen. Uh listen, they've got a number of guys in DeGrom and Heaney and Uvalde, and to some extent John Gray as well with injury history problems. And so there is um there is going to be a need for a veteran starter uh to, to step in. Um and the other possibility is look, they've still got to go out and get a left fielder. I think that is their their top priority for the remainder of the offseason and what they still have to do in finishing off this roster. And it's entirely possible now that you could flip Jake Odorizzi. you you traded for him. So and he has no no trade situation. You could potentially flip him in a deal somewhere for left field help as part of a as, as part of a package for a left fielder. So uh, the fact that Listen, they lost out on Michael Conforto. They started turning their attention to what other left fielders would be available. Um, In the course of that conversation, it became apparent to them that Nathan Uvalde, who was still on the market, wanted to come to the Rangers. And uh, I don't think his market had quite developed the way he had hoped. And so... Some circumstances came together, and there's more than one way to attack a problem. And the the problem here is how do you make the Texas Rangers a better baseball team? And if you can improve the pitching staff further, you take that opportunity when it presents itself. You will still address left field, but right now what you've done is giving yourself more depth in the rotation.
0: I want to ask you this, and there's probably really no way of knowing this at this point. But uh, I'm, I'm interested in because of what has transpired in the short amount of time that Chris Young has been the actual guy running everything and, and making these acquisitions. Do you think that if if John Daniels was still the president of baseball operation for the Rangers, that they would have gone out and made all these moves?
1: I I think there's so many factors involved there that that it's hard to be definitive. I think John would have advocated for going out and adding to this this roster. Um, But certainly a sixth consecutive year of losing has impacted Ray Davis in a way that um, I don't know if it would have mattered who was running his baseball operations. He's clearly been more willing to invest money. Now – has Chris been any more effective in advocating for that or was Ray just committed to saying, let's go get what it, what we need to to be a a competing ball club. I I can't answer that question. Um, As far as Odorizzi was concerned and how quickly that came together, look, the Braves presented the Rangers with an absolute gift. They were willing, they needed to move some money, um, I think there were they're one of the few publicly owned baseball teams, and I think that um, or publicly publicly held baseball teams, I should say. I think there's there's always some situations involved with that, with quarterly reporting and all that other stuff that may have made some some sense on why the Braves wanted to move so quickly. But I would like to think whoever the GM of the Rangers were, the perhaps the most pitching poor team in the big leagues last year, that if somebody came to you and said, "Look, we're going to," we're going to pay basically all of this guy's salary. You can have him for free uh, that either GM would have taken that notion. Did CY play a role in better connecting with Jacob deGrom and Andrew Heaney um, in their conversations directly? Listen, I think we've said from day one that having a player – or having a GM who has Chris's background as not just a business, not just a business person, but as having played the game, would help him and potentially create a competitive advantage for the Rangers in in some regard in terms of connecting with players. And so, I'd like to think that that had some effect. I wouldn't. I don't know that it would have hurt John Daniels in trying to sign any of these guys, but I do think that listen, this is a guy who played the game and he went and he pitched and he went out and tried to go out and get pitchers. And so I'd like to think that there was some small competitive advantage that he created, not just versus whether John Daniels had been in that position, but against every other GM that they were bidding against, you know? So, and and the other thing too, Kevin, I think we need to, we need to acknowledge this. You become a GM, and I think you you have you have a clean slate, and you've not made any mistakes. JD was willing to go out early in his career and make some very bold moves. Some of which paid off. The Josh Hamilton trade paid off. The Chris Young and Adrian Gonzalez trade did not. Payoff, but I think over time, as you as you have results and you learn lessons, you probably become a little bit more cautious. And so, right now, the fact that that Cy has no real previous resume maybe makes him a little bit more aggressive than somebody who had been in that position previously.
0: But we don't know that he's and he's been a, certainly aggressive in acquisition, but it's all just been money, right? Yeah. So it's, it's not a question. He's not trading any talent. That was the thing that got. Uh, you know, John Crosswise with fans was giving up Chris Young and Adrian Gonzalez, you know, and getting nothing in return for that. You know that that wasn't a question of the, the owners taking, you know, Tom Hicks taking on big salaries. So, you know, I, but we still get fans that complain about that. I, I just it blows me away. Oh, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. it's like what? What do you care? And and, and these, con- you know, the the two contracts last year to the middle infield. Now those were long term deals. Uh, you know, a ten year deal. You know, for Corey Seager, yeah, that, that is some reason for concern there because that does kind of tie you up with a guy for an awful long time that who's not playing the, this position that great as it is now. What in the world is he going to be like five years from now? So uh, so those are those are real questions about that kind of thing. But all the stuff that he's done this offseason with these pitchers, yeah, there's some legitimate concerns about all that, although I think he mitigated some of those concerns by acquiring so many pitchers to begin with the fact that we talked about the, you know, that they now have six starting pitchers and and that's not counting the guys who started last year, you know, Dane Denning, Glenn Otto, you know, that, those types um, kind of to me should mitigate fan concerns about, well, what happens if one of these guys get hurt? Well, they're going to get hurt. I mean, uh, you know, starting pitchers always do. It's a question of how many, if three or four of them get hurt, well, they're going to be in real trouble, you know, uh, but if if only one or two get hurt and they are able to get through those times, when I say hurt, I'm talking about missing significant time, not missing one start or two starts, but missing four or five or ten starts. Then uh, you know, then I, I think that he's kind of covered up a little bit of that concern, hasn't he?
1: Um, and I I think that you in in that little. I, well, let's just call it your little screed there. But in that little talk, you hit on a very. When I
0: say something, it's a screed or a TED talk. When you say something, oh, when you talk for ten minutes uninterrupted, it's, it's like wow, that, that's really good. It's perfect. No, but yeah. I, I
1: do think that in the middle, in the middle of, of of your last thing, you you said something really significant, and it's the difference right now. Not so much between Chris Young and John Daniels. But I think the difference between Tom Hicks and Ray Davis and Tom was willing to go out on a couple of different occasions and put big money into individual contracts. But he wasn't willing to go out and short and try and short circuit or uh, shortcut the rebuild by investing all the necessary dollars that it took to fill all the holes. And what we've seen Ray Davis do over these last two years is is invest money, big money, to fill multiple positions and then rinse and repeat. And if you want to shortcut a rebuild where it doesn't require years and years of timing up of draft picks and development and all that, the only way to do it is with reams and reams of money. And that's what the Rangers are trying to do right now. So that, to me, is the biggest difference, not in the management of the club, Not so much John Daniels' aggressiveness or lack of aggressiveness versus Chris Young, but I think the willingness of ownership to say, "Okay, there's only one way to go forward with this. And that is protect our internal resources long term and spend the money necessary externally to go out and make this team better right now
0: Okay, all right. That's going to do it for our Rangers segment. Uh, We're going to move over now and talk about uh, the college football playoffs, which come Monday night uh, between TCU and the Georgia Bulldogs. Um, Evan, I'll be there for that game. Oh, did you have your little... Oh my gosh! The last thing we needed was sound effects.
1: that's my little Georgia football, and it, uh-huh. it plays music. And I've had this God knows for how long, and I don't know how the battery is still operating. But um, listen, I I, I want to say two things here. First of all, congratulations to TCU. Um, they just went out and did what they needed to do, and they have disproved everything about perceived outsiders all year long. Uh, they have played – Tremendous football. The fact that Sonny Dykes has done it in his first year, it's all fantastic. And as I tweeted in the third quarter of the Georgia game when they were down by 14 for the second point in time, listen, TCU fans, winning championships is really, really hard. So cherish the opportunity. This is, whether you win it or not at this point in time, this is an accomplishment. Cherish what you have accomplished and appreciate the fact that you are playing for a championship on the final day of the college football season of 2022,
0: 2023. Evan, I'm sure they all appreciate the fact that you have, uh, have said that now and they all feel a lot better about the fact that Evan Grant says it's okay to have fun with this. So, uh, I'm going to say that, uh, I'm going to say this about that. Um, I thought that that TCU had a chance to, to beat Michigan. I thought of, of the of the four teams in the playoff, or the or the three other teams they could have played. Michigan was the most susceptible to an upset uh, over the, the the others because they don't have a dynamic offense. Uh, they are they were a ground and pound. What everybody everybody said about that was that oh, this team is this offensive line is going to be so great. There's just no way that TCU can hold up to that. Uh, and they showed that they could do that, and they and they shut them down. Fairly, fairly easily, I thought, uh, in that game. But I think the thing that people need to remember about TCU is that uh, Sonny Dykes has done a marvelous job there, this year. The, the biggest thing he did, which was almost accidentally, was that he transformed Max uh, Duggan from a, a quarterback who, who always had good wheels. When he was a freshman, he would take off. I thought, well, this guy can really run. This, this guy's got some opportunity here to be pretty good. The problem was he took too many chances and threw too many interceptions. Well, they've kind of taken the offense and made it a little simpler, and uh, and he's really responded well to that. And he is just a classic college quarterback to me. He's all heart. Uh, that team has gotten behind that and, and really r- ridden uh, uh, Max to this championship game. But they also have – I don't want to – to make it seem like this is just the the little team that could. Uh, Yes, it it is remarkable what what TCU has done, but Quentin Johnston is probably a top-10 draft pick, the the wide receiver, who had that game-breaking touchdown catch uh, late in the game. Uh, LaDainian Tomlinson's, you know... uh, uh, Progeny is, is, is going to be – the cornerback is going to be a uh, – he might be the first cornerback taken in the draft. Uh, they have a, a, a really good uh, – uh, they have really good pass rush. They have some real good talent. And they and they are really uh, Kendra Miller is also when if he's going to be healthy for this game I'm not sure that he is going to be but we'll see he's also a dynamic talent he's going to play in the NFL the the great thing for TCU is that they have a very explosive offense they can they can take they don't have to to uh, grind and go down the field they can uh, hurt you right away and that's what they did they scored what, 51 points in that game against Michigan. So they have the capability of, of, of putting up points against anybody. I would say even against Georgia, they have the capability of doing that. Um, I, I would say that in this game, it's going to, you know, this is a very tough matchup. The Bulldogs, of course, have a great defense, uh, and we'll, we'll see what they can do. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, uh, as big a believer in, uh, uh, in Stetson Bennett. You know, it, it, it's hard – it's hard for me to go all in on him. He has some really get great games, and he does some really great things. And then every once in a while, he just seems to fall off the map a little bit. But he certainly rallied that team when he when he had to uh, against Ohio State and brought them back for that win. So this should. I'm hoping for a whale of a game. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, and and I, I certainly think that everybody's going to favor Georgia. I favor Georgia to win this game too. But I I would not be surprised if TCU would in fact win. Um
1: yeah, I I, I I can't disagree with you on what you said about Stetson Bennett. I I go back and forth in individual games on what is he doing? What are they doing? Um there were points in time in the Ohio State game when they had gotten the game back to pretty much normal, and I'm just I'm I'm texting my buddies in Atlanta like uh, right now, all you need to do is play Smash Mouth football. Just run the football at them. Ohio State cannot stop this offensive line. McIntosh was was just gashing them for for gains, and then they they start throwing the ball again, and that led to to scoring quickly um, at the end of the first half. And Ohio State coming right back down the field and, and throwing that long touchdown pass. Um, and and I thought that in the second in the in the second half when they got the ball. They 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 threw the ball too often and and then got back down. Um, but in the fourth quarter, and, and this is the thing that that for me sticks out, is what I've watched the TCU this year, and what I've watched of Georgia this year. These are the two best finishing teams in the country. It's appropriate that they will finish off the season, and and, and so I'm hoping for. Just a wild fourth quarter finish between these two teams that, that will really that will just really be exciting. Um, I, I hope that's what we get. I, 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 you want a good game. Um, I, I think Georgia should be favored. I think that their secondary and their pass rush has not been as good as, as I would like over the second half of the season, particularly after Nolan Smith was lost with a torn pectoral muscle. And so the fact that they are playing what, in my mind, was you know the second-best quarterback in all of college football this year, at the very worst, uh, is concerning. Um, I still feel like the same thing that applied supposedly going into the Michigan-TCU game should apply to Georgia. I, I think this offensive line is special, and I think that there's no way that, that TCU should be able to stack up with the Georgia offensive line. We'll see. TCU TCU found a way to stop Michigan, right? So um, I, I think that they're I, – I, TCU opened as a 13-and-a-half underdog. Is that right? How much of an underdog are they?
0: I haven't seen. I, I didn't no, – I have not seen that. That sounds right, though.
1: Um, I don't think it – I don't think the line should be that big. I think it's it, – uh, listen, however you got here, these are the two best teams in college football, and there's a lot of confidence TCU has so much confidence going for it after the way it's finished game after game this year. Um, and Georgia here, here's the one thing that I would say, if you're Georgia, you, you, you do look at Stetson Bennett and you say he's lost one game in two years. And in the fourth quarter, he figures out a way to do some pretty special things. So, uh, I'm just hoping (laughs) I'll say it again. I'm just hoping for a great game. And, uh, at the end, I hope that George is a little bit greater.
0: Yeah, I, I tell you, I want to talk a little bit about the, the you know the, the job that Sonny Dykes has done here. You know, uh, uh, if you if you talk to these players and you and you see, well, what was the difference here? Because obviously, Gary Patterson had done an unbelievable job at TCU, uh, building that program, uh, getting the. Uh, getting donors to to back it, to to refurbish the stadium, to build the end zone complex, to, to do all those things that you have to do and you have to have to be a great program. I mean, that's just, let's face it, you know, even if TCU's not just killing it and recruiting, they're still recruiting pretty well or a lot, a lot better than they used to. And you got to have these things to do that. So he did an unbelievable job, but it had all fallen off, right? I mean, he got... Fired in the middle of the last season, and and so it, it was uh it was not the same program. And what you see here, I think, is what happened is Was that- it not
1: the same program or was it not the same coach? I mean, had you, you know, as you have said on many occasions, Kevin, um, and I think as we've all seen, Gary did a great job building this program. But Gary Patterson Boy. is also he's a different cat personality-wise. And right. Does that have did that have some long term residual negative effects on the program and and on the players and on their psyches?
0: I think there were a lot of things that went into effect here. Yes, and Gary's a different guy. He's he's, he's got a little bit of a, a personality, you know. He's 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 just different, you know. And uh, and it was it was always interesting to talk to him after a game as well. He was also very hard on his players. Uh, he was a very tough uh, coach and uh verbally tough, uh tough as far as what they would have to do in practice and those kind of things and and he was very old school. Uh, Gary would have fit in very well back in the 50s and 60s and maybe even the 70s. Um uh, that's a hard thing to to do now though. I mean, even Nick Saban doesn't Coach that tough uh, anymore. Uh, And Gary was also great. You know, the things he was doing on defense, you know, he was revolutionary on defense and his concepts and and all of that. And that was all really good. But I do think that uh, sometimes what you get after that kind of thing is you get a little bit of a uh, – with a guy like Sonny – who's certainly not that kind of coach and studies much more of a CEO coach. He's he hires good assistants, lets them do their jobs. And then he feels like he's kind of in charge of, of just running the whole scene. Right. And, and kind of maybe, uh, providing a, a, an atmosphere here of uh, this is who we are. And this is what we believe. Um, and much more like, Mac Brown, frankly, uh, the, who was that kind of coach, and Mac was always susceptible to whoever his coordinators were. Sonny's, I think, uh, from that standpoint, Sonny could run that offense if he needed to. Uh, I, I don't think that would be an issue. Garrett Riley, Lincoln Riley's uh, brother, is is his offensive coordinator and does a great job. But I think Sonny could do that. That's where. It, That's his roots. Of course, he was a Mike Leach guy. So, you know, he could do that if he had to, but he doesn't. You know, he kind of stays out of the way. I I think that what you've had at at TCU is that it was a little bit of a kind of a rubber band effect. You know, it was stretched so tight with Gary, and that's been relaxed a little bit. And so the players have reacted very well to that. I think they've reacted very well to Max Duggan, frankly. I give Sonny all the credit in the world, but I give. I give Max a little more credit. This kid's story is unbelievable. You know, what's happened to him. He wasn't even going to be the starting quarterback. Chandler Morris was going to be the starting quarterback. He, he, you know, Max didn't get mad about that. He's ready to come back. You know, he's all in. He's he's like one of these stories that you used to grow up reading, right? About these these guys who's rah-rah and I'm here. I'm, I'm just for the team. I'm not for myself. We, we see very little of that in uh in college football anymore well so, the, two
1: quarterbacks, the two quarterbacks playing for the national championship both have remarkable stories right and they're both survivors and i think that has that is what inspires their teammates around them in a lot of ways knowing that this guy has just been determined and resolute to do the best job possible and and i and, and there's a certain level of calmness that goes along with that and, and conviction in that um I think you can say that about both these guys. Yeah,
0: and that's and that's a listen. That's a more of a rare thing for a Georgia, right? These days, if you're Georgia, you're not getting some guy who had been a junior college quarterback. You're you're getting a guy who's a five star recruit. You're not necessarily getting that at TCU. Uh, you're you're they may start getting five star recruits. You know, based on this, this this is the kind of thing that can really just blow up your program. I mean, all of a sudden you're getting whoever you want to come out come and look at what you're doing. Yep. Uh, if they can kind of sustain this, which they may be able to do, you know, it's not going to be easy. The, the problem for a program like TCU is that, is that when they, when this talent bubbles to the top. And like I said, they certainly have NFL talent on this team. They've got, I think they probably got four or five guys who are going to play in the NFL on this team. Uh, and and I, when I say play, I don't mean just be guys, they're going to be starters in the NFL. So they, that, that can't be overlooked. Uh, but certainly Georgia has a bigger foundation of talent than, than TCU does, and they're going to have that every year. and So they're always going to be in the running for this kind of, kind of thing. TCU, maybe not so. This just going to be a lot harder for TCU to, to sustain this type of performance and this, this level of play from year to year. Uh, Even when Garriott was at his best, he wasn't able to sustain it like this. It was kind of like an every-other-year thing for him. Uh, I remember Grant Taft said a long time ago when he was at Baylor and having success, his formula was, we're hoping that every four years we're going to compete for something. We're going to compete for a Southwest Conference title every four years because what he was hoping was that I'm going to take this freshman class and I'm going to build it, and we're going to go all the way up, and by the time these guys are seniors, they're going to be really good. Uh, And that's what you – That's what those kind of programs have typically had to do to be competitors.
1: I want to just, uh, before we go get out of this segment, I just want to do, I, I do want to say this, as long as we're talking about the coaches, listen, as a guy who does get to put his, take his objective hat off, usually during college football season and get to just root for his favorite team in Georgia, the maturation of Kirby Smart as a head coach has been phenomenal. He drove me crazy the first three years by running up and down the sidelines, being too involved in everything, yelling and screaming nonstop. And you watch him now; this is a guy in complete control of the game. He had two brilliant moves, um, I thought, in 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 the uh, Ohio State game. Um, certainly, the timeout call, just as Ohio State was about to kick that field goal, um, was. Enorm or I'm sorry, run the fake field or the fake punt was an enormous call. Um, And I thought the way he handled Stetson Bennett at the end of the first half, going to him as they were going off the field, putting his hand around him, talking to him individually, one on one, not airing him out in front of other players. I thought that was significant. Um, And and this is this is this is for me. It's an example of a college football coach learning and growing. And and, and so, uh, you know, Sonny is Sonny's a veteran coach. He's he's in his first year at TCU, but he's a veteran coach. And so I think he's got some of that. I also do think that one thing that TCU has going for it right now, obviously, is, is the Texas OU, not just the migration of the SEC, but also I think these two schools that they've often recruited against, uh, they've gone through their own transitions in the last – Couple of years, and and they're going through that that transition period. And I think TCU is is poised to kind of capitalize on that. And here we are talking about Sonny Dykes and the job he's done. And the best thing we can say about, or not the best thing, but but the most remarkable thing that Steve Sarkeesian has done in the last week has been air out a volunteer at the Alamo Dome before the Texas Bowl. So um, two different two different pictures of two different programs.
0: Yeah, it's, it's not a good picture for Texas fans either, is it? Uh, it's like, how does this guy get over here and take this team that wasn't as good last year as Texas was, and this year TCU is in the national championship game and Texas is losing the Alamo Bowl? I mean, that that just kind of – yeah, that says a lot. And it's, and it's not a good signal going forward for these teams. I will say this about your, about your pal Kirby Smart – I don't think anybody's talking about him going to succeeding Nick Saban in Alabama anymore. Uh I, I think that that's that's not a step that's not a step up for Kirby anymore, right? So that tells no, you a I, lot about what, what that program is.
1: I mean, I, I I listen, there were there were points in time early in his in mm-hmm. his tenure at Georgia that and, and I was a big Mark Rick fan, you know. Um and there were times when I was I, I was concerned that this guy was just gonna be another Will Muschamp. He's not another Will Muschamp. champ he has grown as a coach. He's he's changed and he has made Georgia he's made Georgia the best it, it, I, I, it's hard for me to even say it, but he has made Georgia the best program in the, in the nation.
0: Yeah, we'll see and we'll see if the if TCU can knock off that program. If it does, I tell you what, I'm officially declaring this a state holiday. If 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 TCU wins a national championship, I am officially proclaiming it a state holiday. Maybe even for the rest of the week. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I got to get back from. I got to get back from L.A. first.
1: Well, I don't. I mean, between between our state politicians um, glomming onto every Texas and A and M win, uh, I, I don't know. Will anybody embrace the little private school? I don't
0: know. I don't know if it, I don't know if there's anybody in in the uh, state hierarchy there that went to TCU. I, I'm not sure. They're, they're all going to claim it now, though. They're all going to be big, big horn frog people now. Well, you know what? I, I visited TCU a couple of times. Uh, so we'll we'll see what happens. All right. Well, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We missed our old pal, David Moore. Uh, he'll be back with us next week. And uh, we'll do that podcast from out. I'll be out there in L.A. Uh, before we uh, make that flight back. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about how the Cowboys did this uh, weekend against uh, Washington and whether they're going to enter the playoffs as, a, uh, as the home team or they're going to be on the road. We'll see what they can do. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks and we'll see you next time.